morning's Bible reading is found in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, which can be found on page 1063 in the Pew Bibles. The Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Amen. Yesterday, when I was going over the final details of this morning's service, I noticed that the author of our opening praise, Christ Triumphant, was... Michael Soward. Now, that rang a bell with me because during the past week his daughter Jill died. And Jill Soward came to public notice 30 years ago because of a horrendous incident. Uh, a number of ruffians uh, broke into her father's rectory, beat him up, and brutally raped her. And she was the first uh, rape victim to go through a court case and then voluntarily to give up her anonymity that she might um, promote the cause of people who, like her, suffered from sexual violence. And a little voice said to me, when did you last pray for people who have suffered from violence, sexual, and others? And I couldn't remember. And so this morning, amongst other items, let's pray for those who have suffered in this terrible way. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the life and wit 
witness of Jill Soward, who suffered so horrendously as a victim of rape and gave up her anonymity that ye might support rape victims and promote their rights. And we pray for all who have suffered and who suffer as she did, victims of sexual and other forms of domestic violence. We thank you for those who, by your grace, have been able to return to a semi-normal life with rewarding relationships and family life. We pray for those who have been so scarred and traumatized that such a life is still far from them. And Lord, we pray you to heal the deep wounds which they carry. Protect those suffering in secret, at home, in violent relationships, and grant that that many in our society may see that a casual attitude to sex can only bring hurt, hardship, and unhappiness, and much worse. Protect all at risk, especially young people out for a night's fun at the weekend, and bless the activities of those who work for nightlight, street pastors, and similar organizations. We thank you, Lord, for those who walk with Jesus has led them to join our fellowship for Ben and Kylie, Matthew and Gordon and Rosemary. May they be enriched within our fellowship and may we be blessed by their fellowship. We pray for Simona as she leaves to serve in Nepal for a year. We pray for safety in traveling and working in that mountainous country, for harmony and mutual support in the OM team, and for deep joy in serving the Nepalese for your sake. May we be faithful in the place of prayer and support those that we have named and indeed for one another. We pray for those in special need at this time. Specifically, we think of the family grieving the loss of our late sister, Dora Carlyle. We pray for them and we bring other personal needs to you now in the silence. Here in highest heaven and answer for your name's sake. Amen. Good morning and uh, Happy New Year to you. It's lovely to be back in uh, Bloomfield this morning. Can I encourage you to take uh, a Bible and turn with me to John chapter 1. This morning we begin a new series in John's Gospel, which will take us right to Easter and beyond as we look uh, in John's Gospel this morning. We're in chapter 1. And then next week, we are taking the journey in John's Gospel from chapter 13 all the way through to the end, which will take us through the Passion narrative 
of John's Gospel. And tonight we begin a new series in our evening service in the book of Revelation, looking at the seven letters uh, to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation. So please come back uh, tonight for our evening service uh, as well. By way of introduction, John's Gospel is a lovely little gospel if you're into structure. Uh, Chapter 1 is often called a prologue. Chapter 2 then up to 1250, chapter 12 verse 50 is containing Jesus's public ministry and then chapter 13 onwards which we'll be focusing on is his private ministry both to his disciples and as he heads to the cross. So let me pray for us as we come uh, to the gospel of John uh, this morning and over these coming months. Father we thank you again for the beginnings of a new year. And we pray as we come to your word that you will help us by your spirit to understand it, that you'll help us to apply it to our lives, and that you'll help us to love the Lord Jesus who John declares to be the word. Lord, be with us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The following uh, books have something in common. Maybe, Maybe you know what they are. Lean in 15 Minutes by Joe Wicks, the body coach. Or J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Or, many have seen these on the train and bus, The the Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. And then David McWilliams, or McWilliams, isn't it? Uh, The Midnight Gang. Many of you might have received these over Christmas or given them over Christmas, unknowingly that these are the top five booksellers, according to Amazon, in 2016. These are the top five books that were sold, according to Amazon. But no matter what books you read or study, you know that the author writes with an intended purpose, don't you? Either to entertain you or to inform you or to stir a controversy or just for the pure enjoyment books are written. And it's no different when it comes to the books of the Bible. They have an intended purpose. And the fourth gospel in the New Testament, John's gospel, which you have open in front of you this morning, is very upfront in telling us what the intended purpose of it is. And for a moment, I want you to turn and find out for yourself. You'll find it on page 1090 of the Bible. So turn with me to John chapter 20. Let me hear a flick in the pages, please. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. You're going to sit for 20 minutes. Let's find out what what he's writing about, why he's writing, what his intention is. Because in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John is up front and he tells you this. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. What you can take from that is that everything that Jesus said, everything that he did is not in John's gospel. There are lots more. Actually, John later on says, if I were to write down everything that hit, the world wouldn't contain the books of account of Jesus' life. But then he goes on in verse 31, do you see it? And he says, these things are written, that you, that is the likes of you and me, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What a lovely upfront way to begin a gospel at the end, where he tells you these things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the rescuer, the Son of God, and that you would find life in his name. This is the intended purpose of God's word here in John's gospel. There's no hidden agenda, no small print ready to catch you out. John tells us emphatically what the book is seeking to do. It is seeking to convince you to trust Jesus as the Christ, 
the Son of God. And that word believing is a continual presence, so that you'll continue and continue and continue and continue to believe so that you may have life in His name. And so we find that here is John telling us the intended purpose of his gospel, but then as he starts his journey in chapter 1 of discovering and exploring and investigating who Jesus is, he takes on a different approach to the other synoptic gospels. He doesn't begin with genealogies. He doesn't begin with the birth narrative. Instead, he begins in an entirely different way. And so we find in the beginning, if you go back to chapter 1 of John's gospel, verses 1 and 2, he introduces us to Jesus as the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Greek readers, when they saw this word Logos, would have meant for them an impersonal principle of reason that made sense of the world around them. It was some impersonal principle that kept an order on the universe. John takes this word logos and he says to us, this is God's divine speech to you, his expression. The word is Jesus expressing what God is, who he is, and revealing us to us. John Piper explains the phrase in the following way. He says this, so as John begins the gospel, he has in view all the revelation, all the truth, all the witness, all the glory, all the light, all the words that come out of Jesus in his living and teaching and dying and rising, and he sums all that revelation of God with the name he is the Word, the first, final, ultimate, decisive, absolutely true and reliable Word. Here is Jesus described as the Word. But what do verses 1 and 2 tell us about Jesus, the Word? It says, in the beginning was the Word. And you cannot read John's Gospel without thinking, I've heard that before. I've heard that echo of those words before in Genesis 1 when, do you remember? In the beginning, God. No explanation of who God is or where He came out of. In the beginning, God. And John takes that familiarity of Genesis 1-1, and he brings us to John chapter 1, verse 1, and he says to us, in the beginning was the Word. It's a deliberate echoing of Genesis 1-1, so that we would realize that the Son of God was always there, always existed. He is eternal, not created. The Word was there in the beginning, and He just existed. No explanation. It's controversial almost. The Word though we're told further on, was with God, and the Word was God. Here we have in this densely packed verse some deeply important and profound truths about who Jesus is. And maybe you're here this morning, you're going, you know, I have a rough idea of who He is. I think I know what He is. I've been coming to church for 20, 30 years. I have an idea of what He is. Well, John is telling us specifically what He is this morning, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's implying relationship. If you're with somebody, it implies you're in relationship with them. And this is Jesus, the Word, in relationship with the Father. But there's also the Word was God. There are some today who argue that Jesus was not divine, that He is not the God. The JWs, if they knock on your door, will tell you from this verse that the Greek doesn't have a definite article in it. So how can He be the God? when there's no definite article. 
That is not the context of John's gospel. There is no definite article, but it doesn't take away from the fact that the word is described here in John as God. He was with God and was God. Further on, John, Jesus will say to the Pharisees of all people, he will say controversially in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. We're one in being, one in essence. We are the same. And so the, these opening verses are so densely packed with the word, with relationship with God the Father, with Jesus claiming to be God himself as John puts it forward. But verses 3 and 4 tell us that Jesus, the Word, is also creator. Do you see it there? Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. These verses are communicating to you and I this morning that the Word, Jesus, he is the creator of all things, and the one without whom nothing was made. What wonderful truths. There's a lovely little phrase in Genesis 1 when it describes how God has made creation. And then God decides to make men and women. And he says this little phrase. He says, let us make man, women in our image. Who's the us? It's a plural. He's describing the word here, Jesus. And you see the us is the Godhead of the Trinity involved in the creation of all things. The book of Colossians backs this up further. Do you remember those very famous verses from Colossians 1? For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities or rulers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He sustains things. And the question you have got to ask is this, why is it important that Jesus is the maker and sustainer of all things? It means, firstly, that he is God again. It reinforces the fact that John 1 says, the word was God. Only God can create. He has power to create from nothing. And that is why, as you read John's gospel and you see miracles and you go, how could they happen? Well, they can only happen if you believe that God, Jesus, is creator, who creates, who's able to do miracles. His first miracle was the water into wine, sick people healed, death raised to life, all done because Jesus is the creator. It means also that Jesus as creator has ownership or a claim on his creation, the world, and his created creatures like you and I. Have you ever thought about that? We're not independent. You were made. And so God has a claim on your life. We don't live independently of him as if we could sustain ourselves on our own. God sustains us. He made us by him and for him. It means we're dependent on him because all things were made by him and for him. So Jesus, the word is God and creator. And you know something, this is what the church has celebrated and defended down through scriptures, down through years of heresy with regards to the deity of Christ. And that's why the creeds, which were put together in order to celebrate what we believe about the Godhead, and the Nicene Creed has this. Let's say it together, will we, this morning? We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, and through him all things were made. 
you're attending a confessional church, a church that stands on creeds and the scriptures. What beautiful celebration of who Jesus is here, where it says he's of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Jesus, the word is God. Jesus, the word is creator. But he's also referred to in verse five as the light. Do you see it there? Jesus, the word is the light. Fortunately, over Christmas, there wasn't that many storms. Well, a few. Barbara was a bit of a letdown, wasn't she? She she was hyped up and then never happened really. But I presume many of you were getting the torches ready or the candles ready in case Barbara took out the Christmas oven so the turkey couldn't be cooked. And when the light is referred to, we always use light to illuminate, to reveal, to show. And it's the same here, the use here in John's gospel that is used of Jesus. He is the one who will reveal, illuminate, show God, both in his life teaching and actions. And so verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. A bit of Isaiah language there, isn't there, from our Christmas time. But the contrast is between light and darkness. And some have referred to chapter 1 of John's gospel as the foyer into the gospel as the waiting area into it, where you're introduced in the foyer to different themes, the word, light, darkness, contrast, children of God, belief, and then the rest of the gospel maps it out. And this is what's happening here. John is throwing into the foyer light and darkness. The verdict is this from John 3:19: light has come into the world, but we love our darkness. Instead, our deeds are evil. Jesus spoke again of himself, and he said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then John 9, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light to us. That means that there are some who walk in darkness. There is that contrast, that two-way Those who follow Christ are in the light. Those who do not are in the darkness. And in what God does then, as he introduces this light, is in verses 6 to 9, he tells us about a witness that came to the light, preempting his coming. And before Jesus comes into the world, a witness was sent ahead of him in verses 6 to 9. He's named as John, do you see it? Who was preparing the way to testify and witness. John the Baptist, he's a bit like one of those pace setters in a road race or in a bike race before the main contenders come in. He sets the pace, he gets people ready, preparing the way for the main act. And that's exactly what John's role was. Verse seven says, he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that all men might believe. He was not the light itself, he came only as a witness to it. And this was John's purpose, to witness, to testify about Jesus. And that is exactly what he does. Many thought John was the Messiah to come. Many thought this was the light. John is telling us to repent, to know God. And many came to him and said, are you the Messiah? To which John replies in chapter 1, verse 23. Do you see it? I'm the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight way for the Lord. John's obscure lifestyle and humble beginnings was all about getting people ready to meet Jesus, the light, the word. Later, John would say of himself, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And if you take time to study John 
the Baptist. There's something for us in his life and his attitude. His witnessing for Jesus was pointing people to others, to Jesus. Folks, we can do that at work. We can do it in school tomorrow. We can do it in our general life. You know what? Do you know who the word is? He's God. Yeah, it's controversial, but he's also our creator. He's come to know you, to make himself known. He is the light for us to know. Where our attitude is, maybe he must become greater. I must become less. Jesus, the word is God. Jesus, the word is creator. Jesus, the true light was coming into the world. But how was the word, the creator, the light going to be welcomed and received? What was it going to be like? We see in verses 10 to 14, three kind of responses to the word and the creator. First one is this. He, it says, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. The world in John's gospel is always seen in negative light. It's that anti-belief. It's that anti-God kind of mindset and attitude in the world, in people. And so it's never seen in good light in John's gospel. And there's something profoundly sad, isn't there? And wrong with this verse in verse 10. That what is created doesn't recognize its maker. Imagine for a moment that you have a piece of Play-Doh in your hand. You create this little individual. You give it an environment to live in. Breed life into it. And then one day it turns around and says, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. I don't want anything to do with you. You know what I do? Straight down. Squash the little Play-Doh. Wouldn't you? The arrogance of it after I'm making them. But you know something? I don't think God acts like that with us. Instead, what he does is he creates, he comes into the world that he made, and the world doesn't recognize its maker. There is something profoundly wrong with that understanding. And we see that played out in the gospel. We see people reject Jesus, mock him, beat him, despise who he is, their creator, in view of their eyes. But secondly, it wasn't just the world which didn't receive Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own, his own people didn't receive him. There is nothing compared to being amongst your own people, is there? It brings a sense of identity, belonging, security, acceptance. Many of you know what this is like. You experience this on a Friday night in the Kingspan. You're amongst your own. You got the jersey on, even though they're playing brutal at the moment. <laughs> but you're amongst your own. You're cheering them on. There's a sense of belonging, acceptance. Or you experience it as you faithfully follow Glen Torn or Linfield every wet and cold Saturday afternoon. You experience that sense of belonging. But imagine what it is to be rejected by your own people. And that is what happened Jesus. He comes to his own, the Jews. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll see that the Jews don't embrace him. They don't acknowledge him. In fact, they hate him. They try to kill him. They disown him as Jesus, as he comes to his own people, as the Word, the Creator, the true life. But he keeps on going back. And he keeps patiently telling them of who God is and who he is yet they continue to reject his own. There is nothing as bad as being rejected by your own. 
the world doesn't recognize him. His own didn't recognize him. Yet, verse 12 and 13, what a lovely verse. But to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. What wonderful verses these are as they tell you that you and I can be children of God in how we respond and receive Jesus. To be a child of God is not about your background or your heritage. Growing up in a Presbyterian church doesn't necessarily mean that you are a child of God, no matter how long your heritage has been here. If you've come into this church for a very first few years and you think, I'm not Presbyterian, it doesn't matter. You know what matters is your response to the Lord Jesus, to the word, which determines whether you're a child of God or not. To be a child of God is to be born of God, new life in him for those who receive and believe in Jesus and, his, and, and the son, to become the children of God. What you believe about him goes a long way in determining whether or not you're a child of God, how you receive him. A child of God embraces God's son. A child of God continues to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, continually, not just 20 years ago at a camp or at some mission that they were at, it's continual belief. So, so far, John has declared that Jesus, the word, is God, that Jesus, the word, is creator, that Jesus is the true light. But there's more. Don't miss it. Get this, Jesus the Word became flesh. Verse 14, the Word who existed in the beginning, the Word who was God, the one who created all things for himself, the true light. Now in verse 14, we read, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the Word, takes on flesh, humanity, just like ours. He pitches his tent in the world he created. This is known as the incarnation. God becomes man, took on human nature. Listen to how Philippians puts it. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Born as a baby into a human family, he ate food, he went to the toilet. We don't think in these kind of earthy terms of God becoming flesh. He knew human emotion of sadness and love, loss and joy. He was exactly like you are. But why? Why did he become flesh? To show his glory and to reveal his Father. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God as the presence of God came into it. Here, it was called Shekinah glory. And here in John's gospel, the same idea is communicated as God the Son takes his dwelling in man, became man, and dwelt amongst us. We see something of his glory as he pitches his tent in this world. And if you read the teaching and life of Jesus in John's gospel, you'll see that there are seven miraculous signs done by Jesus 
to show his glory. The first one, the water into wine, has this effect. The first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. That's what it's for. God became flesh, revealing his glory, revealing who he was. And lastly, this morning, and finally, we see in verses 15 to 18, Jesus, the word, makes God known. Verse 18, do you see it? I'm jumping ahead. It says, no one has ever seen God. You know what? If you said that to somebody in work tomorrow morning or in school or university, they go, you're right. It's true. No one's ever seen God. Many today will say, if only I could see him. If only I'd believe in him if I could see him. Many to say, say that God is just a figment of your imagination, a crutch, some higher power that you need in life. If you want to see God, what his glory is like in truth and grace, then look at Jesus who is the Son of God. This has huge implications for the religious of Jesus' day. They just couldn't accept it. They just couldn't receive the fact that Jesus in the flesh was God revealed, and today is still the same. Many see Jesus as a poor old victim. Many perceive him as a good moral man to be followed in lifestyle and word, but they don't see him as the Son of God, the Creator, the Word. And so today, the encouragement for all of us as we begin this journey in John's Gospel is that as you read the account of Jesus' life, Jesus, the Word, makes God known to you and me. That is why we're encouraging people at Christianity Explored to read the Gospels. That is why you should encourage your children, read the Scriptures. Why? Because in doing so, Jesus reveals himself as God in the flesh. There is none like Jesus. He is God, creator, and the true light. There is none like Jesus. He became flesh, revealing his glory and making God known. Do you want to know Jesus, this term? Do you want to continue to believe him and grow in that? Keep journeying in John's gospel, discovering his glory and who he is so that we will grow together as a church over these next few months and we will marvel at who God is in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. We thank you for its means of grace of knowing you better. And we pray this morning. Help us, Lord, again to embrace and receive and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to see him in his glory as God revealed, creator, true light, the one who became flesh in order that we may know you and follow you. Lord, be with us and continue with us this morning, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.